Mank is the story of the man who wrote Citizen Kane, and the experiences in his life that influenced the classic film. This was a passion project for David Fincher that he's wanted to make since the 1990s, so let's see how it turned out. Welcome everyone to the Collector's Cut, I am Peter and joining me as always is David. We cannot capture this movie in an hour and a half. Only the review of one. This is a movie podcast. We talk about movies and we're working our way through the works of David Fincher. In fact, this is our final episode of this mm-hmm. current season. Uh, next week, we'll move on to something new. Is it Christmas season next week? It is Christmas season. Oh my, we're into okay. December. Well, next week, we start the Home Alone franchise. In fact, on that Ooh. note, uh, you'll be getting a you'll get, be getting more than one a week for a little bit. Because we want to knock out all six Home Alones before Christmas Day. So you're getting mm-hmm. some extras. Uh, Merry Christmas, everyone. But we are uh, finishing off our, our Fincher season. We've done almost everything he's made, just barring Alien 3, because that's over on the ace, because it's sci-fi. And we've left Girl with the Dragon Tattoo remake to go with the other Dragon Tattoo and other you know the rest of that the franchise. Hornet's Nest, yes. Fire, something. Technically, it's the girl with the franchise, because that's the thing that unifies them all, but it doesn't sound good to say, so it's the no. Dragon Tattoo franchise. Yeah, that's that's far better title. So, yes, we're here for Mank, which was the one film, other than The Killer, obviously, which was brand new, that I <laughs> hadn't seen out of all of these episodes that we've done. This was the first uh, first time watch, and I was excited to finally get around to it. I can't believe it's already three years old. I feel like I have just been meaning to get to it and just kept pushing it. And now it's, oh wait, it's been three years, which seems to happen with a lot of movies, to be honest. Yeah. So here we are. It's it's incredible with how many movies people can verify that you are watching because you do (laughs) reviews for them. How many still manage to slip through the cracks for so long? Absolutely. I mean, hell, just look at my letterbox. I'm I'm logging Mm. movies left and right, but somehow uh, some stuff still slips through the cracks. But, um... Yeah, we'll get into it. The We'll start spoiler-free, of course, as we always do. The basic gist of this one, it's based on uh, true events. It's about Herman Mankiewicz, uh, Mank obviously for short, who was the screenwriter on Citizen Kane. And it's somewhat about him writing that screenplay, but it's also kind of about the decade building up to that moment where uh, some of the things that influence what he wrote about in that script uh, mm-hmm. are kind of played out in a series of flashbacks. So... Uh, it's black and white. It was a straight to Netflix movie. I mean, it did get a very limited theater release, so it was eligible for awards. I was gonna say, but it, I feel like every one of those prestige Netflix releases is just like with like a couple screens enough to get us into the Oscars. Yeah, it's just just enough to be eligible and no more. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's that's uh, interestingly this finished shooting in February twenty twenty. So if they were just a few weeks later and still had stuff to do that that release date would have probably slipped quite a bit that's the point where david fincher's just sitting in his chair is like i swore i wouldn't use cgi but i gotta i could just finish the movie now <laughs> oh dear and this was a there's a big gap between this and his last film gone girl because he mm-hmm. was doing mindhunter for a few years uh in between them so it wasn't like he wasn't doing it i think he was actually doing something else and I'm still not quite forgiven him for just giving up because he said it was taking too much time. And I'm like, yeah, we wanted like five scenes of this damn thing. We wanted you to finish the story, Fincher. 
Well, Mindhunter wasn't getting Oscars. It was only getting Emmy nods, which who cares about that when you could get Oscars? But did Mank get Oscars? Uh, yes, at least one. It did? Okay. Yep, I think Cinematography was the one it won for, yep. Okay, all right. Fair enough, fair oh, enough. Oh, no, actually two. Production Design as well, so... Multi-award winning. Very good, very good. Uh, so... Yeah, uh, so as you said, there's in black and white. It's going for a style. Uh, it's interesting, though, because it's in black and white, but they shot it on, like, you know, ultra 4K digital red cameras. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I almost wish that he went backwards and also said, I'm going to shoot on film, but Fincher's been, like, a digital boy for, like, a long time now. Oh, yeah. There's been, no way Fincher would go back to film. I think he's been digital. I think Panic Room, at least, maybe even... I think Fight Club is still a film. I think I think Panic Room is a switch to mm. to digital. I could be wrong, but I think that was a switch for him to digital video. I I mean, if we're just very briefly getting into the movie itself, the movie does everything in its power to make you believe that it is shot on film itself because they they do like the whole cigarette burn stuff. They make it like there's a yeah, little the jumps things, in the frame yeah. every once in a while. Yeah. But it's still uh, very clearly digital. Yeah, it just looks too clean. And mm-hmm. despite anything they add to it, which makes it a little disingenuous, which is a shame because I, I do think it would have been nice to be in film. Yeah. Um, you know, something that's set at a very similar time period that we did recently was Oppenheimer and Nolan still shoots on film. He didn't do it in black and white. Oh, I actually did segments in black and white. <laughs> I'm saying that. Yeah. But uh, that looked a bit more old school in that sense because of it, even though this has a lot of flourishes and because it's set around mm-hmm. hollywood especially you see a lot of like actors of the time period and their their haircuts and yeah. the old timey studio stuff and them walking around the back lots and all that stuff so uh yeah um but yeah that, that's the basic gist of what the movie's about and we'll we'll get into it so i'll just ask david the question uh what did you think of mank I think this movie had a lot to say, and I I don't think it quite got it across well enough. I think that this movie is very dense. It has, like you were saying, the basis of the plot is Citizen Kane, but honestly, a majority of the plot comes down to like the inner working politics of Hollywood at the time, and I say politics in both the studio structure, and also just U.S. politics. Yeah, electoral and, politics, yeah. And because it's doing all of that, it does feel a little spread thin. It does feel like it's just trying to do a bit too much all at once, which there's a quote in the middle of this movie where they're discussing Citizen Kane, and they basically say, man, it's too confusing, this cutting around in time sort of stuff. No <laughs> one's going to get it. And I, even as that scene was happening, I'm like, this is Fincher just talking to the audience, being like, I know, I get it, just try to follow along. So, all in all, it was a well-made film, but I can't say I really enjoyed it as much as a lot of his other films. It's got its meta moments, because clearly the structure of this is somewhat meant to mimic Citizen Kane. Oh, absolutely. And that's intentional, of course. So you've got all that stuff. I mean, it doesn't open with the main character's uh, death. <laughs> that doesn't take that part from Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. but it, it does feel like it's, it's doing a lot of similar stylistic things. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of mixed on it as well. I think there's some standout individual scenes in this that I really liked mm-hmm. on their own with how they handled certain things. But I don't think it really all comes together into a, a coherent 
full form film where by the end i really felt like i, I got a full experience and part of that is that going into this not actually knowing a whole lot about this character or a lot of these characters and like the the, the backstory behind the making of citizen kane obviously i'm familiar with citizen kane i have seen that movie mm-hmm. but there's a moment early on in this film where he started writing the script and so the so the sort of the the constant like present day stuff for lack of a better term which is 1940 right. where he's he's got a broken leg and he's writing the script in this like house and he's got a couple of assistants he's got like a nurse who's german and uh another assistant who's like the typist right who's like this mm-hmm. this british woman and he's <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. What was I building up to there? He was talking about something that I was going to make a really good point about. I mean, you were just talking about, like, there's some good scenes in this movie. No, but it, it, there was a specific lady said that I was about to reference because it was going to make oh, a point I for me. Oh, Beats me. Damn it. Anyway, anyway, I'm sorry. Whatever. Uh, so, yes, he's, 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 he's writing the script. And mm-hmm. uh, he he's... Uh... <laughs> Cut! It was such a good point I was about to make. I, I didn't even interrupt you. I, I don't know, even know what you... I've had a lot of sleep today, okay? Like my brain's going to just melt at various points during Especially this movie. Like, this was the worst movie to be doing in the day where I had very little sleep because mm-hmm. it was so dense with... Oh, I remember what I was going to say. Hey! <laughs> right. So there's a moment early on in this movie where he's written maybe some scenes and the assistant reads it and goes... I mean, this guy you're writing about, he's, he's clearly this other dude. And she doesn't say a name. She just says, I can clearly see who this is meant to be. And he's like, yeah, do you think other people will? Like, yeah, yeah. And I, I was sitting there going, I don't know who you're talking about, though. Right, yeah. <laughs> I don't feel like you've set this up for me. And obviously, as the movie goes on, you eventually get to a point where you do know who they're talking about. But it, it felt a bit weird. It felt like it's so dense with details that I'm sure were very well researched in fact uh, just a bit of backstory on the making of this movie mm-hmm. is that originally fincher was going to direct this after the game this was a script i don't know if you noticed the writer mm-hmm. of this it was his father did, yep. who mm-hmm. wrote this movie and his father passed away in 2003 uh for whatever reason it got pushed back at the time and i don't know if maybe after his dad died it wasn't something he wanted to get to immediately but obviously eventually it was a bit of a passion project he wanted to finally do this script that his dad had written uh mm-hmm. which is all fine it's, yeah it's all very nice but that that's uh you know like there's a clear love of this era of hollywood and wanting to explore this side of it um and i did a little bit of research because yeah there was so many names and things been thrown around i wanted to know yeah. a bit more and uh, apparently there are like two schools of thought apparently there was like journalists arguing in the 70s about is citizen kane amazing because of orson welles like you know auteur direction and performance or is it the script that's the star and there's kind of a debate going between which one was the more important and you know i think i would just stock it up to they're both pretty important <laughs> ultimately it's a smart oh, yeah. script uh, admittedly i think at least what filmmakers team seem to take from or uh, take from citizen kane more than anything is all of the new ways and that orson wells used the camera it was all the ways he right. shot the scenes and i don't know if that's necessarily something you can give to the script but as they clearly point out in this movie, between the assistant and then like the like his agent, if that was that character, who like comes yeah. in and says, Hey, this is jumping around a lot. It's like you kinda need a roadmap to understand this thing. Like clearly the idea of a non linear movie was not something that was being done oh, at yeah. the time. I don't I don't think that there was an idea of this 
because obviously plenty of movies would have started with okay here's the present day and then we cut back to four hours earlier four weeks earlier however far back you want to go um so there was this idea that non-linear is okay but i think the way that they were saying citizen kane was more so jumping around much like this movie did where you would see present day stuff and then go back to older stuff and i feel like I, I, that I is i want to go back in time and hand this agent the script to memento and just watch his mind explode since they're <laughs> wait a minute hold on what's a cell phone <laughs> i just i just i'm just because you know non-linear is such a thing and nolan especially does like to experiment yeah. with the structure of movies and we're so used to dealing with it that it's quite funny hearing someone in 1940-41 being like, I don't think we can get away with this. Audiences look like, it's too confusing. Like, it's oh, yeah. jumping around. Like, there's it's a, there's a brave a, new world. There's a scene at the very beginning of this movie where there, a bunch of writers are basically pitching this movie idea to an exec. And they're just talking out of their ass. They have, like, no idea what they're even doing at that point. They're just throwing out random plot points and hoping something threads together. <laughs> but they're saying it in this sort of way and they're like oh yeah it's this uh it's a monster movie and everyone he immediately points out like universal's got the monster movies monster movies are done they're they're dead so already at this point there's this idea that there needs to be a shakeup in what's in the theaters there needs to be something new thrown out there but then nobody has any idea what that new thing should be yeah uh and it kind of comes back to the idea of letting people take chances. And if you're just going to say everything that's new is scary, then yeah, right. obviously, because the movie opens with some text saying Orson Welles, despite the fact that he was like 28, was given free reign to make a movie where he had final cut, he'd have no studio interference, and that's how Citizen Kane got churned out. And, mm -hmm. you know, people still refer to it as one of the most important movies ever made. So yeah. obviously, you can't do that with everything. Do you know who else had Final Cut and Free Reign? Tommy Wiseau, okay? Like, they're not all going to turn out to be special. Well, that is special, yeah. but not in the Eat same Eat your way. heart out, Orson Welles. Well, there's even a scene in it that's, that's kind of a remake of a Citizen Kane scene. Yeah. When he's wrecking mm -hmm. the room and throwing stuff around. It's like, oh, this is... <laughs> who did it better? Orson Welles or Tommy Wiseau? <laughs> That'll be... That whenever we get to the room on Criterion Cut, we'll finally make that call. Hey, you joke, but I, I think Criterion, if they got the rights, they'd put out. A, oh, no doubt, they would. They would release that movie. Put out Benjamin Button, as we already established. Oh, and one of those is a lot more enjoyable. <laughs> One's a lot more deserving and culturally important. Mm-hmm. And I say that with I a, I'm not even joking. Like I'm saying that with a yeah, straight face. Absolutely. It's one of those things where I think it's the Library of Congress is like, oh, we're selecting films for the registry that's like the most important films culturally. So while you will have films that are there that are, you know, your Ingmar Bergman's or whatnot, you'll also get Shrek added to the list <laughs> because it's like, no, it's, it's important culturally. We're not saying it's good. It's important. Yeah. So... Yeah, but I, I think this movie, it, as it is jump, I have no problem with the movie jumping around. Like I love non-linear no. stories. Like I, I'm super into it. I think this one, though, and this is very different from a lot of Fincher's movies, is that it's a lot more like laid back and like you know, it's contemplating things. I I don't want to say meandering because that's got a really negative connotation. Yeah, but it doesn't have this driving force throughout that's kind of pushing. Where you know, even Social Network 
has this driving force despite the fact that it's not a thriller like a lot of his other films but then you look at something like seven or gone girl there's like a driving need to know the next bit there's a you know mm-hmm. there's something constantly unfolding whereas with this it's more of a, a low-key drama it's a low-key analysis of how one person's perception of this time period led to the script and mm. It's it, in a weird way. It's, it's like a prequel to a movie, but it's a prequel to the making of the movie as opposed to the movie itself. But it mm-hmm. it almost feels like it dabbles into prequel territory at points with the ways like watching someone get involved in politics and I'm like oh that shows up later in Citizen Kane. Yeah, things like that. I mean that's that's the sort of thing where this movie I I really wanted to sit down between watching it and recording this and actually watch Citizen Kane again because it just seems like there are so many parallels that are just being lost on me because it's been years since I've sat down and watched that film. Yeah, I, I, I wish I would have had it more fresh because I've seen Citizen Kane, but it's been a while. So, yeah, same. you know, so I, I was like, yeah, I kind of wish that I had either just watched it or watched it right after just to... Mm-hmm. The one thing that really got me was there's a segment probably midway through the movie where, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, Mank enjoys gambling. It's a thing he likes just, to do. It's a constant running thing, yes. Yes. But there's a point in the middle of the movie where he makes a big bet and then it looks like it's not going to pay off. And they do this sort of weird ethereal scene where you see like the clock ticking around his head. But it's like very much of the time effects of what could be accomplished Mm. via just like negatives of film and uh, just compositing and stuff like that. And that's the sort of thing that I feel was probably ripped directly from Citizen Kane. I feel like I remember seeing that kind of scene being present. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think one of the standouts for me, and I can say this without really spelling anything, is mm-hmm. there's a scene maybe about a third of the way in where it's, it's a birthday party for the guy running MGM, right? Uh, mayor, mm-hmm. right? Literally the, you know, Metro Golden Mayor, the, 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 last, yeah. the last name on that list. Um, <laughs> Lewis B. Mayor. And he's making a bit of a speech, and Charles Dance's character's there. He's William Randolph Hearst, who's this... Uh, newspaper guy if that sounds familiar if you've seen citizen kane who what? is really rich and is getting involved in all this stuff and mm. it's this party scene but it's a really weird unrealistic scene in some ways in the sense that everyone in the room is kind of like they're all kind of separated out throughout the room like some people are sitting at the, the fire some people are over at these other sofas there's like a corner of sofas on the other side of the room it's a very big room but they all just sort of seem to be in the same conversation where you know, Gary Oldman will say something on one side of the room and then someone on the other side of the room will respond to it and the conversation bounces almost like they're sitting like at a dinner table where they're all chiming in and they're all part of the right. same conversation, but they're all spread out. But I kind of liked it because they start talking about what's going on at the time and this scene, uh, a lot of the scenes are set during the 30s and this scene in particular is 1933, so it's the year the Nazis came out of power in Germany and that mm-hmm. subject comes up. They're talking about the difference between socialism and communism, they're talking about the Nazis and what they're doing and some some of them not wanting to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. Some of them not understanding. Like literally, someone turns to someone and says, "What's a concentration camp?" Like that's a yeah. line of dialogue in that scene. And I, which it doesn't even feel like it's out of uncomfortability. It just feels like it's 1933. People just don't know yet. Well, no, that one's not uncomfortable. But there's definitely like there's a woman who's like, "Oh, can we please stop talking about? It? I don't want to talk right. about the Nazis." So, you know, there's. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the way it bounces around all these characters. It's a long, like t- maybe ten minute sequence of this conversation bouncing around and occasionally Gary Oldman will have a little zinger that makes a few of them laugh and, you know, mm. it keeps going around. I was like, that, that may be my favourite scene in the whole movie just because it was so intricate in the way it bounced around and it was bringing up all these ideas that were very important as the movie 
went on we find out some mm-hmm. things uh later on that sort of tie into all this stuff so i really like that scene this uh, when i got to that scene i'm like oh maybe this is where it's going to start kicking into gear where i really see the the artistry and unfortunately i think after that it kind of went back to some of the other flashbacks that i was less interested in yeah but you know uh, which is a shame so i did find myself you know in the two hours and 10 minutes or so that this movie lasts i did find myself kind of not i I wouldn't say i was like unengaged per se but there was definitely a sense of okay like you know how much is left (laughs) like where are we yeah so my biggest problem with the film is that there's really, as much as we say it's a non-linear timeline, it really is just two timelines. It is present day, and then it is slowly working its way up to present day from 19. Yeah, but barring, I think there's like a flash because the flashback at the start with their pitch and movie ideas, that's actually mm-hmm. from much later in the timeline than most of the rest of the stuff in the flashbacks. Right. Which goes back to about 1930 and starts, yeah, like you say, chipping away up to mm-hmm. roughly 1940. But I think the problem that I have the most with it is that the different timelines are both working towards different things it doesn't feel like one is informing the other or enforcing the other it feels like just two totally separate things where the only thing that we get from the old timeline is finally figuring out why he feels so compelled to write this script about hearst in the first place and honestly i don't think it was necessary i don't think that was needed to get to the point they were at it was a big bombastic scene don't get me wrong they worked up to a good climax but it just felt like each time we cut between the two different time periods we were just seeing two different ideas for what a mank movie could have been Mm. yeah 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 i I guess i kind of agree with that because as well as a well-performed scene that you're talking about uh this big sort of dinner table scene Mm -hmm. towards the end it did feel a little bit it, it was a bit weird because it was kind of important in that charles dance's character is so absent from the movie for large mm-hmm. chunks of it that you kind of needed a big scene with him to really solidify his importance towards the end but at the same time all of the actual dialogue and all the things that Mank says in the scene feel really on the nose now for all i know the real person actually went on this rant and it was all stuff that ended up being in citizen kane and if that's true then fair enough i I can't argue with the fact that it happened and i get why you feel the need to put that in the movie because that's kind of a big deal that he made this big speech and then went away and you know wrote this film yeah but it, it it does feel a bit weird where i felt like the character that charles dance is playing who's so important to the motivations of the movie and the character of mank that i feel like we should have been getting more of like their relationship throughout right. instead it focuses a lot on his relationship with his wife uh played by amanda seyfried uh we get a lot of other stuff which is important but i i do think a, a more emphasis on that would have been nice because it, it did leave me feeling a little bit cold that like we haven't developed enough of like the build to why he's feeling because you know when they first meet charles dance they get along quite well yeah. and obviously that changes throughout the film but it kind of changes between the flashbacks. We don't really get to see, you know, we obviously, yeah, we get a big event that he's tied to that obviously mm-hmm. is an influence, but we don't really get to see specific moments where Manx's opinion really shifts, if that makes right. sense. And I, I think that's a problem. Yeah, because majority of what the old plot is dealing with, as I said before, is the politics. It's not about this individual man. It's more about what this man represents of, 
the old blood of the studio system that controls everything in Hollywood compared to this new idea of like, no, how about the people control things, not just in the studios, but also in just politics as a whole, which is came to your thing about socialism and whatnot um, and the argument they had with that. That's the main focus of the second older timeline. The Hearst stuff is like just there as window dressing to tell this story of politics. It doesn't feel like it's informing the writing of the script later on that is supposedly based on his life. It, yeah, it feels like it should be way more emphasized than it, mm-hmm. than it actually is in the movie. I, I think that is a big issue. Um, it is kind of nuts though, like early on they're talking about how the, the Writers Guild is a new thing that's just formed and yeah. I'm like, we just finished the writer strike. <laughs> this is so weird to be hearing this. Yeah. But here we are. Uh, mm-hmm. And they seemingly, I mean, we don't know exactly like what they got in the victory yet, if, if we can call it that, but given that they held out as long as they did, I suspect and hope that they did get everything they wanted. Um, right. You're talking yeah. about like now, now. Now, now, yes. Movie. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go back to this time period and say, hey, by the way, there's a, a concern in the future that they might just use a computer to write the script instead. Mm-hmm. So all you writers yeah. are in a bit of a job. That was one thing that was incredible to me. There's a line somewhere in here where Mank is saying like, oh yeah, you know, as a as a junior writer getting $750 a week. And I'm like, I'm sorry, $750 a week back in 1940? That's incredible, that amount of money. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I mean, it's <laughs> not fair. it's not a point one thing or another, but like just to think about it in terms of modern day, where you hear people are not able able to afford rent or not uh, as a actual being like on the show that they are writing I mean, the entire yeah, thing for. I think this goes for everything, though. You, you like if you go back to the fifties and sixties, you hear about families where the dad's got a wife and three kids, and it's just him that works, and he's it's yeah. enough to pay for the like they've bought a house. He he you know supports three kids. And a mm-hmm. wife with just one paycheck a month. And, like, the economy's changed over the years, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I just found it incredible. Because they said, at first they said seven fifty, And I'm like, $7.50. That's, you know, that makes sense in my head of how low prices were back in, especially this was, like, Depression era at that. This was, like, late 30s. And, um, yeah, then they they clarified, no, $750. I'm like, ah, oh, God. I want to be back in those times. I could write. I could. I would go back then, write Memento, blow everybody's <laughs> minds. They weren't ready for it. You have to. Nah. You have to build up through through culture. This, <laughs> you can't just jump straight to a new movie. All right. I. I mean, nineteen thirty. What nine was Batman? So I'll just do Batman Begins as soon as the first issue comes out. <laughs> I believe it was nineteen forty, David. Thank you, but nice was try. It? I'm gonna double check now. My nerd cred is up for it, grabs. It was. It was definitely in forty. Or forty one maybe, but not, yeah, not... you're right. I'm I'm thinking action comics. Action was thirty eight. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Wait, hold on. I think a detective because that's what I'm. That's nineteen. No, wait. That's issue one. We're off track. Anyway. <laughs> oh dear. Yes. So. Yeah, I have to go back and invent Batman just to screw Bob Kane more than anything. Yeah, there you go. But then Bill Finger also gets the finger. So. Yeah, but, yeah, but give him give him a cut. Oh yeah, there you yeah. Go. I'll just say, hey Bill, I've got a man dressed like a bat. What would you name him? Uh, Batman. <laughs> All right, you're a co-creator now. <laughs> here's here's fifty fifty of everything, and you. So I mean, you've still done something wrong because you've just stolen Batman from mm-hmm. from Bob Kane. But 
he stole it from Bill Finger. At least you're giving Bill Finger half of everything. Bob Kane yeah. didn't do that. <laughs> I'd say this is the best timeline. I don't know about you. Yeah, it's a perfect timeline. Uh, so, spoilers, I guess? <laughs> yeah, spoilers? I mean, <laughs> I don't think... The, the only thing I did want to bring up is what I was saying before about those little touches that he does to make this feel like it is an old-timey film. Specifically, like, the cigarette burns in the corner, and then... As he, he specifically times it as well. It's not like he just drops cigarette burns anywhere. Because the whole point, if you remember the Fight Club scene, is it's the indication for when the projectionist needs to change over to the next reel. And so he specifically times them so that after like, you know, five seconds and then one second, it cuts into the next scene. So you can almost predict when a cut is coming just because you can see those up in the corner for like one or two frames. I think that was just a brilliant little touch to it. He didn't have to do that. It would have still seemed just as filmy, but he decided to go through and make it that little extra mile the same way it would have been back then. So, tiny little things like that. Yeah. Uh, so, full spoilers then for Mank from from henceforth. Mm-hmm. So... It was a sled. Wait, is that uh, a spoiler? <laughs> d- different movie. Different yeah, movie. fair enough. Uh, yeah, so... Like I say, the framing device, if you want to call it, it's more like the A-plot rather than a framing device, to be honest, is mm. him writing the script, confined mostly to a bed. He, I think later on in the movie, he's walking around with a crutch or whatever, but he, mm-hmm. he spends a lot of time just in the bed. He's an alcoholic. That's brought up many times. Um, I think one of the things I appreciated is that after that big scene where they're talking about Nazis and the Holocaust, uh, they don't use that word, obviously. I don't think that was you know a thing yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they're talking about concentration camps and stuff. Um, there's, a, there's a neat little scene where we find out the German woman who's there helping him, um, and she puts up with a lot of his shit because he's you know he I mean he's not like he's kind of nasty verbally he's never violent or anything like that but he's he's got a, you know he's got a bit of a mood oh no yeah <laughs> shall we say it's, I mean he's at he, this point he's already recognized as a fantastic writer people see his talent so it seems kind of a thing where his job here is to write and therefore he's able to treat everyone else kind of like trash because it's all about him and him getting his process done but he's not like cruel or anything like that he's just a dick but the uh the british women's like you know why are you here like putting up with this guy like i I know why i'm here but why are Mm -hmm. you here and she mentions that he got her and her family out of germany uh in the 30s and not only just her and her family but her entire village which was a hundred people and yeah. i didn't fact check this to see if the real mankiewicz uh did this but this is a pretty big thing so i assume there's some truth to this yeah probably i mean i can't imagine they'd be able to make up an entire schindler's list plot without having some truth to it but it was it was an interesting because i think it served a purpose in making me sim- or like him a bit more as a character and making me think, okay, I know this is going down a path where he's going to oppose the more right-wing views that this, you know, Hearst character is going to start being mm-hmm. kind of the, the, the figurehead for. And the idea that he was willing to or try to help some some Germans get out of Germany when the Nazi stuff was going on... Um, is you know like uh, it's an inst- it's an instant win right it's an instant okay good guy thing oh, yeah. to do but it also just ties into the themes and where it's building to with the conflict with the other character and that this one two punch of that big conversation scene and then this little reveal soon after it 
was probably the best like pair of scenes for me in terms of getting me interested in where the movie was going where mm-hmm. it's like sort of themes were going and then you know i wasn't i just i wasn't into stuff after this quite as much because it just it, it, it handled it by looking at it from certain angles and viewpoints in ways that i just didn't think was as interesting obviously they tell the story of building up to this election and the big part of it they get to is that um hearst has mayor from mgm make basically a smear campaign of propaganda about yeah. the de- democratic uh candidate for the position uh who is for people who are aware of literature upton sinclair who was mm. a big like political guy he was the guy who basically exposed a bunch of the uh i think his big thing was called the jungle if i remember correctly and it was just exposing the like meatpacking industry and how horrible it all like was back then so he was basically responsible for the fda coming into existence as a whole and being able to help people food wise yeah um so this is it kind of comes from like Mank's suggestion but he's not being serious of course when, when he, he kind of says this but he, mm-hmm. he's talking to one of the execs that he knows um at mgm and mm-hmm. says well you can convince people that there's an ape like king kong's as tall as like this three-story building and mm-hmm. you can convince i don't even remember the actress's name but he says this actress is a virgin in her 40s Right. Uh, you know you, if you can convince people of those things but you can't convince that your guy your candidate's a good idea that you're not trying hard enough and it kind of almost inadvertently leads to the idea of them making these smear campaign videos and obviously this is this is the 30s so this is probably i'm sure there were smear campaigns before in newspapers and things like that or maybe even on the radio but this was probably mm-hmm. one of the first examples of it being a video of it but something that you're seeing see, you know, you're yeah. showing in theaters before a movie plays wherever they're putting this uh like it feels like it's kind of tapped into a new malicious thing to the point where one of the guys involved in doing it who actually supports the democrat ends mm-hmm. up committing suicide after the election is lost because they they kind of shrug it off as like ah you know people are too smart they're not going to fall for this and then the republican wins by a significant margin yeah so because this came out in 2020 i mean this came out in 2020 just either before or after the 2020 U.S. election, mm-hmm. uh, November 13th. So I think it was just after. I mean, this this is just a full commentary on, like, fake news and propaganda and stuff used in politics. Like, full stop. I mean, they open up, like you were saying, that one conversation about the Nazis. They talk specifically of saying, like, oh, yeah, I watched this little talkie where Hitler was kissing a baby. And they say the feeling it gave them and it immediately informed their decisions on the nazis as a whole just based off of this tiny clip that they saw and it's just i mean the nazis were very well known for being some of the first to use film in a propaganda aspect and people in that scene as well like one or two of them just shrug off the nazis is not a big deal like ah i'll blow over it's not it's not going to be a big thing little did they know that the holocaust and world war ii was you know just right right around around the the corner corner, yeah. yeah So then to turn that over and say, okay, we've got this, you you kept calling it the smear campaign, but it's even more insidious than that, is that they specifically picked actors and such to pretend to be yeah. normal people as if it were a newsreel, as if it were so like a, a being funded by theoretically neutral people. 
In fact, even, bef- even before you see the, the film they've made, uh, mm-hmm. there's a small scene on a beach where yeah. uh, Mank is listening to the radio with his wife. And it's this, like, you know, woman who says she's a poor single mom, blah, blah, blah. And she's, no, mm-hmm. I'm voting for the Republican because I, I think he'll keep, you know, I, I need to keep my home and I think I'll be able to do that with him in charge. And she's doing this whole sob story and why she's voting for him. And mm-hmm. Mank's like, that voice is familiar. And he realizes that it's an actress that he knows. Like, he's, mm-hmm. he's basically clocked that they can get away with this because no one can see her. But yeah. he's actually recognizing the actress's voice. So they're already doing it via the, the, the wireless, as it was called in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so yeah, the, the, the films, the evolution of it is the next step. Yeah. But it was this idea that it's it seems to be the first time, of course, not definitively, but it seems to be the first time that they are working this in as if it were just news, as if it were these people just off the street. It isn't people being forthcoming and saying, I'm an actor and I believe that so-and-so should be governor. It's them saying, no, this is all just playing a role. This is all just sneaking it in under the wire as if it were something real. And I think that that is a super interesting take. And I would have loved to seen that be kind of the main plot. And in a lot of ways it is because we spend more time in the flashback than we do in the modern day story. But because it all has to culminate to the modern day story with the writing of Citizen Kane, it doesn't feel like it's the main focus. And as such, it kind of just feels like it's wasting time as we go through this. I think it would have probably fit better if if there was a direct link to, like, Hearst is the one who's supposed to be behind all this. Mm-hmm. And I think if you actually showed him making that decision or showed a confrontation where Mank realizes this came from him, that it was his mm-hmm. idea to do this, then I would like I would think it would then fit in quite nicely. It'd be like, okay, you're the monster who chose to do this. And he tries to talk maybe talk him out of it. And yeah. then Hearst is says, you know, tries to justify why he's why he's doing it and why he won't stop it. And mm-hmm. that could be your your way to make it feel more connected to the writing of Citizen Kane and the movie. But it kind of just, like, I don't even think I realized that Hearst was even connected to it until the dinner scene where Mike goes on his rampage talking about it. I thought it was just the mayor guy from MGM. I thought it was just him. Yeah, I mean, I, I was able to piece together slightly earlier just because there was, I can't even remember where, but there was some conversation that basically implicated him because his beliefs were lined up properly mm. and they were the only ones that had, like, the money to do this or something like that, but... Yeah, no, it's it's a super interesting plot line, and I really would love to have seen it more fleshed out, but the it seems like the only reason they did it was to get Mank upset enough that they could have that final com- confrontation scene at the dinner table. It doesn't th- feel like there was, that was the focus of the movie as a whole, where I think, honestly, it should have been, because it's a far more interesting plot than this kind of dual setup we've got going on. Yeah, you know, you, you, I think it's interesting to think about the actors who are in this, like, reel. Did they mm. understand what the purpose of this performance was? Do they actually have these beliefs themselves, so they're happy to mm. do it? Or they've been tricked into, oh, you're just playing a character, and this is for something. And they don't understand that they're helping spread, like, support for this. Mm. You know, but, I don't know. And 
I guess people would say, but oh, how naive could you be to not think that? I think now, yeah, but I think given, like we're saying, this is the first example of the, of this kind, really, at least for a lot of these, this, you know, area, this time period involved, mm-hmm. I totally get that they maybe would just be convinced, oh, this is just a part for something that they don't understand. I mean, I mean you say that nowadays, but they still make these movies. They still do these things. It's not like it's gone by and they wouldn't do it if it doesn't work. Clearly, there must no, be I, some return. But I'm saying from the actor's perspectives, I think an actor oh, nowadays yeah. knows what they're involved in when they're been asked mm-hmm. to do something like this. I'm saying here I could be convinced that, no, some of them just are innocently taking a job and don't understand yeah. that they're, you know, contributing to a smear campaign. That's right. Uh, I mean, there is that scene very early on where Mayor uh, just basically walks in front of his whole studio and tells him, hey, everybody, because of the Depression, we're doing pay cuts. Everyone's on 50% salary. But he's framing it as a plea to them saying like i don't want this any more than you do guys i'm i'm totally on your side we're a family yeah we're a family here at metro goldwyn mayor but one of them even chimes up he's just like hey if all of our uh salaries getting cut is yours getting cut too and he's like let's not get stuck in the particulars guys let's just uh it's important to not hear that he says to them that in eight weeks it'll go back up and Mm -hmm. Uh, you'll be back paid all the, the cuts you had yep. but then we later find out that okay the wages have been back up but he never gave them all that money back that was cut nope. for those eight weeks like he promised they would and they even in the scene leading up to it they show him kind of just giving the breakdown of the studio to Mank's brother who's apparently trying to get a job there and he says straight up like we spend a million dollars on stuff that nobody's ever going to see and that's just so we can give it a shot see if it'll work and then we never actually put it out there and he says that as like a point of pride of like, we could just spend a million dollars on nothing. And then he immediately walks in the studio and says, we don't have any more money, guys. Please be okay with that. <laughs> I think it's, it's all a framing thing because like, I think it's completely acceptable to say not every project that you put some development time and money into turns out to, you know, come yeah. to exist, you know, to fruition. That's acceptable. Although a million dollars does seem like a lot in, you know, nineteen thirty two or whatever yeah. that year this Espe- is that he's given this especially speech. because he's specifically saying we are in the depression like we <laughs> the banks are closed and we're spending a million dollars on things that no one's ever gonna see yeah he also says um there's only one star at mgm and it's the lion and never forget mm-hmm. that and that, that made me think actually of all things of modern wwe because they've done a big thing over the last like 20 years of saying no one like person is bigger than the right. brand itself because if you go back to the 90s or the 80s like it was hulk hogan in the 80s 90s it was stone cold and the rock and they've made this effort and almost to a detriment of like not having superstars the way they used to where no mm. one's as big as any of those guys because they just they're they intentionally don't try and make them that big because they want the brand itself like disney to be the big thing like yeah like and i get the logic of it but that that's what this reminded me of here where he's saying no mgm is the is the brand it's the star and mm-hmm. everyone else is just part of that which again that is a plot that i would have been much more interested in seeing is this transition because as we said the writer's guild was just taking off at this time i would have loved to see this transition of the dismantling of the studio system i know it wasn't like completely done by the time citizen kane came out but I would have loved to see more of that slow chipping away of studios' complete and total power over the stars, over the scripts, and everything like that. There's even a scene in this movie where there's a, um, a female lead, Amanda Seyfried, that... Who's Hearst's uh, girlfriend. Right. Yeah. Who's Hearst's girlfriend. 
And she makes a big deal over how she's leaving MGM and going to a different studio. And it's this whole big goodbye. And she's like, oh, I can never come back to the studio. Because all of these stars were locked in to a specific studio at the time. It was a big deal once one of them left and Actually, went to a different one. To compare it to wrestling again, it was all like someone jumping from WCW to WWF. Yeah. Like everyone was sort of an employee of a studio. Whereas now and for a long time, actors just go and take movie roles. And if they can yeah. fit it in their schedule, they'll make a deal just for that role. And that's it. They're not, they don't belong to a studio uh, nor directors, which again, the directors and writers are all like that here too. They're all on staff, which, right. and that's changed. Sometimes you do get directors who make, make like an exclusive deal and they'll keep making movies for a, a studio for a while. That does happen, but mm-hmm. it's not like a, like a sure thing. It's just like that happens because the studio's like, holy shit, no one's so good. Let's pay him a fortune to yeah. keep making movies at Warner Brothers. Um, it's it's for- one of those things where back in the day, the exceptional writers would be the ones that managed to squeeze out of their contracts and be able to work anywhere. Whereas yeah. the on-staff writers are always locked in. Now it's the opposite where the exceptional ones are locked into picture deals and the normal ones are just freelance showing up whenever. Yeah. But the ones that are locked into deals are getting paid mm. like hefty for being locked yes. in. Like they're, they're Absolutely. making bank as a result. So, yeah, there's a scene earlier on with Amanda Seyfried as well that was interesting. This was because this is like 1931, 32, somewhere about there, where she mm-hmm. first meets Mank and she mentions that she's like just sort of like practicing like more dialogue roles for talkies because they're, they're still a new thing. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're, it may even still be the 20s when, when this scene happens. I, you know, I, like I always dated them. Like they do this thing whenever they go to a flashback, it comes up like a, like the, the header in the scene. So it types yeah. out exterior location day and then year and, and like parentheses flashback for all the old stuff yeah so which is a neat little stylistic choice to capture your flashbacks that way i appreciate that mm-hmm. yeah. uh, but it was it was, was interesting like honestly the movie industry stuff is the most interesting and i wish it was just more of a proper narrative from start to end about that right. <laughs> i think um and the writing of Citizen Kane is fine, and the guy they've got playing Orson Welles does a decent impression. Oh, dude, I think he's spot on. He sounds oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. He's, he's solid uh, as Orson Welles. Uh, Orson Welles, funnily enough, is a relatively minor character in this, all things considered, despite the mm-hmm. fact that he's the guy who we associate most with Citizen Kane and goes on to write Citizen, or goes on to direct Citizen Kane, I should say. Well, see, I, I think that's intentional, though, because a lot of what this movie is positing is, as you said, Orson Welles is not really all that involved. It's more of Mank, and he, he's the one who wrote the whole thing, and then Orson Welles is the one who directed it, adapted it, like, got it onto the screen. Yeah. But well, I... He, he's also credited as co-writer because he did redraft it, so... Right, absolutely. Uh, so, um, so when they win the Oscar for Best Screenplay, as both of them that, that technically get mm-hmm. the award. But they make a specific point that or Mank doesn't believe that Orson Welles really did much of anything in terms of the rewriting because that was the only award that the Citizen Kane won was best screenplay. So Mank believes that that's pretty much all him, whereas Orson sees it more as a 50-50 thing. Yeah, uh, worth mentioning, though, at the very least, he did trim it down because I believe the script when Mank finishes it is about 300 pages. Oh, yeah. Which... I don't know if anyone else is familiar with the rule of thumb that basically transitions pages to minutes in, like, in terms of runtime, but mm-hmm. it's basically a page a minute. 300 minutes is five hours. 
I agree. However, if you saw the way that he was dictating, he was going like really in on the particulars of things. True, he true. Was he was like, being very descriptive. That's, yeah, he was yeah. giving prose more or less. So I feel like it may have been different back then. Yeah. Okay. Maybe he's okay. He's writing a bit too fancy for us, for what we think of as a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Uh, but still, three hundred pages is a hefty script. Yeah, no, people are just like, so I looked over your script, and I'm like, no, you didn't. You would have needed a week. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, notably, it's actually titled The American or something to that effect mm-hmm. originally. Um, yeah. I was actually, I was hoping they were going to get to, like, how it changes its name to Citizen Kane. I assume that was Wells later, maybe, that did that. Yeah, maybe. See, that's the thing, though. With I would have been fine with this movie being focused on, like, the studio system. I would have been fine with it focusing on the politics of things. I would have been fine with it just focusing on the production of Citizen Kane, a la um, Disaster Artist, that sort of thing. But it doesn't do any of those individually. It spreads itself out very thin across all three of them, and it, because of that, makes it feel like none of them were done properly. Yeah, I don't think it's impossible to juggle all three of those things. I think there is probably... Uh, like, and I hate to... I think the sad thing here is is that because this was a script that his dad wrote and he mm. probably didn't want to go in and, like, tinker with it, that maybe in some level it was just like, no, we're doing it as it is. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, I'm doing what my dad wrote. And that, that maybe hindered it in a way, weird way where maybe having another writer take a, a second pass at it to... You know, effectively be the Orson Welles to to his dad, right? And just mm-hmm. give it another pass, just to like tighten it up and maybe have things connect a little bit better, emphasize some other details. Because I think certainly the politics of the not the studios, but the the, the real politics, right? The the stuff mm-hmm. with the campaign and all that that does feed so much into the inspiration for why he's writing about the character he's writing about. That I mm-hmm. think those two do kind of get married together. Uh, the studio stuff feels a little more separate. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it ties in a little bit because they're talking about you know unions. They're talking about uh, how how that fits into overall politics, but it's you know specifically within the the realm of the movie industry. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but yeah, it's doing a lot of things, and it's it's maybe yeah. not. Honestly, there's maybe just too much of him sitting in a bed writing, and those scenes, by and large. Yeah. I don't know if those are as interesting because they're like may- maybe it would have been better if it was just a framing device where you started with him sitting down and dictating the start of the movie to to mm-hmm. his assistant and then you just it's just the, all the movies and flashbacks until the end where we come back to when Orson comes to pick up the script and you just devote the entire movie to telling the story. Ah. See, I would have been okay with that. Or there's the thing that they do once he's done writing the script, because he's actually finished writing it probably by like the halfway point of the movie. Maybe two thirds, but yeah, it's it's, it's all earlier than I think you probably think it's going to be. Yeah, because then they end up coming back and they say, like I said, more people come up and they're like, so I read your script. It's super obvious you're going after Hearst. He's a very powerful man. Are you sure you want to do this? And it's just him buckling down over and over and over again saying, yes, I'm sure. Yes, this is how I want to do it. And people keep hyping him up, saying, okay, if you're going to do it, it's great. Good job. Fantastic. Until finally we get to the end where... And they, the and they, big... all, they all say it's the best thing he's ever written. Like, even though right. they're concerned about like it being so clearly about Hearst and mm-hmm. everything but name, it's the best thing he's ever done. So they're all yeah. very proud of him for it. So at that point, the the 
climax of this timeline of his modern day or present day stuff, I should say, is he calls Orson up and tells him, get up here. You and I need to talk. And he basically tells Orson that going against his contract, the way that it was originally signed and the way that it was basically done back then, he wanted credit for writing the screenplay. And yeah. Orson hates that idea. Yeah, Orson was basically like, oh, I've talked to the studio, RKO is going to buy you out and like pay mm-hmm. you even extra. They're going to give you an extra 10 grand on top of the full price, even though you're not going to have to do another draft because I'll, I'll do the second draft. Yeah, he basically said that because he thought that uh, Mank was too afraid to actually take on Hearst and he, that he wanted out. Yeah, and he's like, no, I want credit for this. And mm-hmm. it's... It's an interesting thing because, you know, obviously he, he says he wants credit. Orson Welles throws some things around the room and then mm. Mike goes, oh, maybe I should add a scene <laughs> where, where where Charles Foster Kane starts throwing things around the room, which yeah. if if anything, that's maybe like when I compared it earlier to a prequel and some prequeliness coming in, mm-hmm. that moment felt a little bit prequely. Like, I don't know, that was a bit on the nose for but me. But see, I would have liked it. I would have loved to see a movie where we just, he he we see him writing the script and whenever we get to a scene... We can do a flashback or some like aside to here's the thing that inspired that. Here's the thing that got that going. Because then you could explore mm. the life of Hearst and the things that he saw in Hearst's life that it inspired all these different things. But in the end, what I think is required in order to fully appreciate that is a really in-depth knowledge of Citizen Kane itself. Which is why I think us both having not seen it for years now at this point, it's a lot of things are falling flat. A lot of things are not working the way they otherwise would. Yeah, I do wonder how better this plays if I've just watched Citizen Kane and it's yeah. fresh in my mind. I do wonder how much better it might play because there might be a lot of parallels that enhance a lot mm-hmm. of what's happening and that's very possible, but like ultimately I need to judge it on its own because that's how I viewed it. And, yeah, same. You know, I do think it's kind of mixed as a result. I, But yeah, so so he wants credit and it's notable that we get, you know, like the the Oscar announcement that they've won, but neither of, mm-hmm. neither of them are there to accept. Orson Welles making a movie somewhere else. He doesn't care enough. To, he's too cool for the Academy Awards. Right. All right. And there's this interview with Mank at the very end where he's been interviewed for for TV and mm-hmm. he's holding the award and he's like, oh, you want to know what my acceptance speech would have been? And he basically says, well, I'm glad to be accepting it, uh, you know, you know, where Orson Welles, you know, currently is, i.e., on my own he's not here like yeah that that this is the perfect way to accept it and that's all he says and then that's when you get the you know the, the, the true story thing at the end where it comes up saying you know he died 11 years later you know he never pursued screenwriting after this or pursued credit for anything else after this mm-hmm. he got his one credit that he, he was proud of because this was the one thing that he ever really truly was passionate and cared about that he wrote and it's like okay that's that's a nice little thing to tack on uh, but sad that he died so soon after it sounds like him and Orson Welles didn't like each other very much and you know fair enough uh yeah it's, it's one of those things where yeah obviously he he wrote the script and it's a very intricate story in Citizen Kane so he deserves the credit no doubt like uh, there's absolutely no debate in that and it is yeah. maybe quite interesting seeing where some of those influences came from uh but at the same time I think it's pointless to do this fight where like who's more important to Citizen Kane because the film making itself how the scenes are captured all these things are so important to why Citizen Kane is respected the way it is. It's, it's a marriage of a good script and a good director. And it just so happens that the director's also acting in the movie as well. Right. But it's a very it's very much a marriage of those two things. 
And the truth is, is that, yeah, in filmmaking, if there's a different writer and director, typically the director is the director's movie. That's just mm-hmm. accepted because the director's bringing all the pieces together. The director isn't necessarily building the sets, but he's still giving them decisions. He's still making decisions that they're going and working to his specifications. They're, you know, they're still trying to build a coherent image. Uh, he's not necessarily lighting the scenes himself, but he's still instructing someone else what he wants. And then the cinematographer goes and makes it happen and does the particulars. But the director's the one who's bringing all this stuff together. He's the person in charge. Uh, right. And, and I mean, especially even for Citizen Kane, because obviously, as you're saying, Orson Welles made some cutbacks in the script. He's the director. And also, he's the lead actor. Like, all of these things combined, when you think of Citizen Kane, even if Mankiewicz is the leading charge where he did everything in the plot of what the movie would become, Orson Welles still had all of this input, all of this way of getting it to the screen. So it's mostly his, all things considered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, writers should always be respected. They're so important. You can't have a Mm -hmm. movie without the writer. You can't have a movie without them writing down what happens in the damn thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But movies are very collaborative, and so much of what a movie is comes after that part of the process so yeah which is why which is why i think that it's strange that the movie kind of straddles the line where in the story in the like text that we're presented mankiewicz just wants credit that's all that he says he just wants credit which is totally acceptable but what the movie seems to part with is the idea that we shouldn't be crediting orson welles like at all like he's not important to the film that came out which seems just as oppositely insane yeah it's, it's absurd yeah 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 like they both deserve credit they're both very important to what the movie is and mm-hmm. if they were having a pissing contest about that and i don't even know if they were it seems like journalists yeah. later were having the pissing contest it sounds like they just didn't want to look at each other again and that was it <laughs> yeah it's it sounds to me like this is that same sort of thing where you know shakespeare wasn't the one who actually wrote shakespeare like those sort of conspiracy theories that come up long after the fact that no one can either prove or disprove. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I just... I think my my primary problem comes with the idea that I went into this movie expecting either the making of Citizen Kane or the life and times of Mankiewicz. And I kind of got both and I kind of got neither. Because it didn't feel like I really saw how Citizen Kane was made. I saw how ostensibly it was written. But even then, it's just, they're still in the first act. Cut to him drinking. Now they're done with the script and everyone just tells him how good it yeah. is. Yeah, there's a whole thing where he's got 60 days to write the script. And there's only, they've only got like maybe two weeks left. And he's only done about a third of the thing. It's like, there's no way you can finish this. And then mm-hmm. his secret power is booze. He's just at Dolph Lundgren in Expendables 4. You give him some booze and all of a sudden he's a writing machine. I, I will pay you not to make that comparison again, but you're right. <laughs> I am, I know I'm right. Yeah. I said it because I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's. I mean, I've seen that before where it's like, oh, you know, the drunkard is better when he's drunk, or especially when it comes to like the creative stuff, or it's like, oh, I do my best work when I'm high or something like that. I get it, but it doesn't make it a compelling story to just then skip over the part where he's drunk. That's the part that gets me is that they just cut from, we only have the first act done to, all right, it's a masterpiece. Send it on its way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And 
there's the like the the scenes towards the end where the various people try to talk him out, but the brother's concerned because oh you get into trouble with Hearst. Uh, Amanda Seyfried shows up, um, mm-hmm. and she tries to kind of talk him out of it, and they kind of have this very amicable ending to this scene where they're sitting on like a tree branch or whatever it is, and she basically says like no matter what like don't take it personally but i'm going to have to try and stop this film from ever coming out and mm-hmm. you know not necessarily her character personally but you know rko the, the hearst and co did try and stop it and mm-hmm. uh, when it originally came out only played in a certain number of theaters because a lot of them were f- scared of pissing off hearst for playing it yeah so there was a kind of a tumultuous tumultuous tum- i'll skip that word tumultuous thank you that's the word yes uh the beginnings to to the movie coming out which which is uh, so many movies are clear like shawshank redemption bombed in the theater but like Mm. became this juggernaut over the years afterwards and it feels like citizen kane like yeah i want to say it wasn't even critically that loved when it came out either maybe one of those where yeah probably not yeah it took some time for everyone to realize oh wait this is actually Mm -hmm. doing really great things here yeah uh but so i mean those those scenes are are interesting like on paper but i think because you've not really sold me that hearst is a scary guy so all these scenes where they're coming up and saying hey you don't want to be in hearst's bad side i'm like we've barely seen him we saw him at the 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 birthday party scene and we saw him in the scene where he first met him and i think at this point in the movie that's the only time i've seen that character and he didn't really leave a lasting impression if anything the guy from MGM made more a lasting impression mm-hmm. in the party scene. It was his party the, for a start, but the guy from MGM, like Mayor himself, and then also the junior executive who ends up taking over, mm-hmm. like both of them, I felt had more lasting impressions of being able to actually influence things than uh, Hearst. Honestly, I think the thing that they were relying on was Charles Dance just being menacing on his own, <laughs> because. He is, but in this, he's not nearly as much as he is in other roles. Yeah. Like, Last Action Hero. That's a classic mm. with him. Yeah. It? <laughs> he's great in that movie. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen that one, so <laughs> take your word for it. That was another classic that was maligned upon its release. Oh, yeah. And, Too meta. Uh, <laughs> I feel like Last Action Hero would play a lot better if it came out now than it at the time. If, it, if it came out now the third act would be nothing but just and here we're introducing the multiverse of cinema that, that's true they would ruin it they would ruin it with modern shit you're right yep. it, it, it's better that it came out when it did i agree because it was mm. arnold in his prime if it came out true. now it'd be arnold as a 70 year old man and that would be de-aged arnold less oh no man. no oh, now, now you're bringing like crappy cg into it let's not do that yep Let's not do that. Uh, maybe we'll get a sequel to Citizen Kane. Maybe this will inspire someone to go off and write. I have to imagine, like, obviously not wide release, but I have to imagine some, like, Z-grade studio was like, we're going to make Citizen Kane 2. And they just tried their hand at it, and it was awful, and <laughs> nobody ever remembers it. Hmm. But they'll have to spell it like uh, Michael Kane just for the you know, so they don't get into trouble with Warner Brothers, who own the movie now. Is it not out of copyright? No, 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 it's no, not? no, no. Oof, damn, that one's lasting forever. No, because because the, the the limit now is like eighty five years, so ah uh, yeah, or it's actually it's closer to a hundred. It's a hundred years now. It used to be eighty five, and then Disney. It's like the life of the author 
plus like 80 unless it's made by a studio or something in which case it's 120 blank or something i don't know it's all confusing for the purpose of nobody ever gets anything anymore i mean for movies it's a set number now because metropolis went public domain at the start of this year in january okay and if you work that out that came out in 1922 no 26 26 so do the math from that okay here we go you won't be able to post Citizen Kane on YouTube legally until 2036. That's almost 100 years then. Yeah. 95 years. Oof. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. Um, Warner Brothers better get their, their, you know, get going on their, their whole trilogy or something then. Because I feel oh, like yeah. as soon as we hit that day, everyone's going to be whipping out 20- their own sequels. 2034, we're going to get the Kane Cinematic Universe. Because <laughs> Winnie the Pooh went public domain and all, there's all That's these right. shitty horror movies coming out based on Winnie the Pooh now. Yep. So, yeah, it's kind of nuts. I mean, we're not that far away from Batman and Superman being public domain, relatively speaking. True. However, because of the way public domain works, you can only use the things that are I know, I established know. back it's, then. It's only so the like, original versions, I know, but... yeah. So, but, like, everything you know about Batman and Superman, you're not allowed to use on, for, like, another couple decades. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just imagine there's, like, the, 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 the headaches of having a legal team who's keeping track when all these things go public domain. Like, all the individual... Like, this is when Kryptonite goes public domain. This is when the oh, Fortress yeah. of Solitude goes public domain. This is when this version of the S-Shield goes public domain. Like, there's, there's the... How, like, detailed some of those stupid documents must be, like going through oh, yeah. all that crap I, I can't imagine i mean now that they've been publishing like golden age stuff again in either reprints or the omnibuses it's actually really easy to just keep track of oh this issue came out x number of years ago therefore i'm able to use it because it mentions kryptonite or whatever yeah as worth mentioning and this goes for film the mm-hmm. only the original version is public domain so if warner brothers have done a new 4k remaster that 4k mm-hmm. remaster only starts copyright when it get created so yep you know like you, you can't just post the 4k blu-ray like transfer without mm-hmm. incurring copyright law it's only if you have literally a a film print from right. that time period or a copy a digital scan of it but mm-hmm. um so there is there is definitely some i feel like some people are going to think they can just do a lot of things immediately and you, you can't really but the one thing you can do is use the ideas from it <laughs> dude I remember back in the Wild West days of YouTube where everyone thought that you could just put a disclaimer in the description that says, I don't own this, and that was enough. <laughs> people are going to do whatever they want to do. Yes, but then people started like earning money from ads on YouTube, and YouTube had mm. to clamp down on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, anywho, I guess we're done talking about I was going to say, Mike. did we watch a movie? We um, did. Yeah, the only other things that I did want to bring up is that I really enjoyed the performance given by the wife, Sarah, because all throughout this movie, he he kept on doing things that were just selfish and rude and self-centered, like those um, bets he made, and he seemed like he was having almost an emotional affair with the... A girlfriend of Hearst at certain points yeah, it's, nothing it's, physical it's, but yeah it's never physical in fact at one point his wife when she eventually shows up in the the quote-unquote present day part of the movie because mm-hmm. we mostly just see her in flashbacks because she's not there when he's writing it until she shows up with the kid like late on and she says something to the effect of platonic affairs which right. is basically what we saw is that 
which not that a married man can't have female friends but it definitely feels like he goes off with her although yeah. that said that scene where he goes off with her after the party um mm-hmm. his wife tells him to go like she kind of gives him a nod and yeah. says hey go and speak to her yeah and that's a, that's what i like most about that character though is that she just kind of gets it she just is like along for this she's just in that same scene you were saying she gives this whole thing about like with you i'm never bored with you i just i i have to ride this out and see how it's gonna end because it's been a hell of a ride thus far i like that just because so many times the plot would be oh you know this this wife who was not given the proper attention she ends up forsaking her husband's name and like she divorced him whatever I'm happy to see something done differently. I'm happy to see a wife who stands by and is just like, yeah, no, give it a shot. Whether or not he deserves it, completely separate conversation. But I, I enjoy the change up in pace at the very least. Yeah, and he keeps referring, like, he calls her poor Sarah, and she mm-hmm. doesn't like being called that. And it's become it becomes a running thing where other people accidentally call her poor Sarah and then go, oh, shit, I said that in front of her because they all know she doesn't like it. But because yep. mine call was calls her that, they're all used to saying that. So that's a covering yeah. little thing. So yeah, it was just a little bit lulling. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then the other thing is the British woman, the stenographer or whatever you want to call her, who's taking down the script. They do this weird thing, which I feel like has to be a parallel to Citizen Kane in some way, but I, I, I can't tell what. Uh... Where at the very beginning of the movie, she receives a letter from her husband who is out in the war. And it turns out that their ship went missing and he is presumed dead or prisoner. And this, you know, it informs her character. She's very upset by this, but she still manages to stick around. And at the very end of the movie, she gets a letter like right as Orson Welles storms out after trashing the scene. She gets a letter saying, my husband's been found. Everything is great. And it's like smiling as they stare into the sunset. Yeah, and the hug, and it's a whole, yeah. Yeah, it was a weird scene, but I feel like it has to be a reference, because it doesn't really fit otherwise. Yeah, that didn't feel weird to me as well, actually, now you're bringing it up. Mm. But you're, you're, again, yeah, I feel like maybe watching this right after Citizen Kane would probably benefit this quite a bit, because you'd maybe see a lot of these things, but it should work on its own, and I don't think it fully does. I think there's individual scenes that are really good with performances, and hell, the mm. big birthday party scene, where they're all just having this big conversation about everything. I thought that was really well directed and performed and edited. Yeah. I think, you know, the filmmaking at points is very good. But then there's other times where it just kind of feels like it's meandering a little bit, and it does feel fractured in what its focus is and, like, emphasizing the right things so that things, you know, when, when big moments happen later on, they should feel like bigger deals because we've been building mm-hmm. up to them. And instead, they left me feeling a little bit cold, where I'm, I'm enjoying Gary Oldman doing the performance, but I'm not really feeling the emotion of the scene. Yeah. And I think that's also, I mean, as much as it sucks to say, this is kind of in the same sort of vein as Benjamin Button, where it is the life of a character, not obviously their whole life, but a very large portion of it, that doesn't feel like it really had a guided through line. It doesn't feel like there was an individual thing that was getting us from A to B. What? The present day storyline did, but I don't feel like the rest of it did. As we know, you can't fit a whole man's life in two hours, only... The essence of it. Yes. Which is why I opened it with the mangling of that quote. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, honestly, yeah, I don't have, like, a ton left to say about this. Um nah, And I, 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 I kind of, like, like, halfway through, I was kind of getting that vibe where I'm like, I don't know, like, 
I'm just I'm not super into this. Like, and I knew I wasn't super into it. And hmm. it's hard to define sometimes. Some movies it's clear where it loses you, but with this one, it was like, no, I mean, well, you know, obviously I was looking forward to it. I, I wanted to like it. It seemed like something, you know, movies that are about movie making can sometimes mm-hmm. turn out to be really interesting and entertaining because obviously if you're watching movies, you like movies. So seeing a movie about the movie industry or something on behind the scenes, yeah. uh, you know, we have not done these movies yet, but when we eventually do things like Martin Scorsese's Hugo or Cinema Paradiso, like there's some phenomenal films that are kind of a tribute to filmmaking in some ways or other. And I was kind of hoping that this would be maybe a, a slightly more cynical darker take because it's this alcoholic character mm-hmm. but instead it it felt a little bit more subdued than i think i was expecting which is fine but i don't think all the pieces fit together as well as they could have and yeah i think when we looked i think i don't know if it was on one of the shows or like just afterwards but we looked up like the the critical reception it had and it did it was still positive but it did seem lower than i think we were expecting yeah it, it was definitely beneath like the eights that most Fincher films had. Yeah, it, it had like seventy four percent on Rotten Tomatoes, like, which is still good. And for certain movies, that would be great. But mm-hmm. it felt a little low for what this seemed to be, which was an Oscar contender by David Fincher. That's about the history of uh, a famous film. I don't know. It just it felt like this feels like it's maybe going to like. Oh, uh, in hindsight, I'm like, okay, yeah, I can kind of agree with it missing the mark a little bit. Mm-hmm so it it strikes me the same sort of way that like very specific documentaries are made where if it's something that you have a great interest in if you're really into citizen kane or you're really into the like the old hollywood system i feel like this is right up your alley i feel like this is something that you're just all in on you enjoy seeing the portrayals of you enjoy seeing how well it was done because it seems like it was very well researched to fit the time but without knowing citizen kane right off the i think if you haven't seen citizen kane at all this movie at least 30 percent of it is just completely lost on you if you don't know orson wells there goes an extra 10 percent on top of that i think that there is certain things you need to go into knowing about before you see this movie in order to appreciate large swaths of it yeah i think that's fair and I think if it was, and I've said this a few times now, but if it was fresh in your head, I think it may enhance it and I may have enjoyed it more. But as it is, I'm judging it as a standalone movie and I, I think it is a bit more of a mixed bag. Yeah. So with all that said, uh, it's time to rate Mank. So what are you giving it? I mean, there's only one venture film that we've been really hard on. Killer may or may not be. Yeah, we don't, this is the thing. Obviously, the killer review will already be out by now. We re- we're recording the rest of the finishers in advance. Mm-hmm. I hope the killer's good. But Same. by the time you guys hear this, you'll already know what we thought of the killer because that would have been two weeks ago. But Yeah. But I don't think this is among like Benjamin Button levels. I think it's the same co- kind of problems that are stemming here where it's just this lack of focus and doesn't quite get across what it wants to get across, but it's nowhere near as poor in terms of just being able to watch it. So I would say this was higher than that, but still low in general. I'd say this is probably... This is probably like a six for me, because I, I'm i looking at Panic Room, 
which was the lowest one that I gave otherwise. And this is this is lower than Panic Room for me. So I'm going to say six. Yeah. I'll eat Panic Room a bit more than you do. So, <laughs> uh, no, I was thinking six. Six was the number I had in my mind. Because there are there, there's good filmmaking in here. Those individual scenes that in a vacuum are really good. Mm-hmm. It just never all quite comes together. Uh, so I like a lot of the things that it's playing with. I like a lot of the subjects that it's tackling. I just wish that I was really invested in the character's journey by the end instead of it feeling like a really fragmented story where it never really felt like one thing was building to the next and I really got that sense as I was watching it. So uh, it's a shame. Uh, It's a shame to end Fincher's season on a downer. Hopefully his newest film we were more positive on, but we'll find Mm -hmm. out. Uh, You'll you'll, you'll already know. We'll find out in a few weeks' time. Non-linear storytelling. (laughs) Very good. Uh, but yeah, so that is our thoughts on Mike. Uh, I suppose we have to see if it makes the cut. Yeah, guess we do. Um, I, th- I mean, yeah, go for it, please. I think we say it doesn't make the cut. I don't think it's cutting it close because I think our general tone right from the start was that this is a misfire mm-hmm. and it's well, there's some good things in it. I don't think it's enough to say... It's cutting it close. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, that's. I was between cutting it close and cut from the collection, but I think cut from the collection sounds right because I have. The only th- time I could ever think of revisiting this is if I sit down and watch Citizen Kane and somehow remember that this movie exists afterwards, being like, oh, yeah, I wonder how that's going to play out now. Yeah. It would be a companion to Citizen Kane if I ever watch it again. And even then, I'm not convinced I want to sit through it again. Right. Absolutely. So that's probably about as damning a statement as I could probably give it. <laughs> uh, so there you go. That is uh, that is our thoughts on Mank. Uh, we Oops. will be starting our new season next week, which is Home Alone season for Christmas. So yep. that's we all. We don't even have to wait. Yeah. Sorry, we don't even have to wait a full week. Next episode's coming out on Wednesday. Oh, we're starting the, uh, the two a week uh, immediately. Yep. Yeah, we got six Home Alone movies to go through, I think, uh, all in. We got Home yep. Alone 1, 2, 3, 4. There was a, a TV movie. And then Home Sweet Home Alone was the, the new one they did a couple of years ago. We're going mm-hmm. to do all six of those bad boys. Hey. <laughs> Throughout December. We all, know, we all know how the, the uh, younger targeted movies do. So I'm sure those last few are just <laughs> going to be top tier quality. <laughs> I mean, everyone's got nostalgia for 1 and 2. Some of mm-hmm. us of a particular age might have a little bit of nostalgia for 3. Uh, just because... I was young when it came out. <laughs> yeah, it was just on. But I have never seen four or five. I don't think I have. Or the new one. So I one of them has. Oh God, which actress is it? Scarlett Johansson. She's in the third one. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah. Okay. If that's the third one, then never mind. Yeah. I was going to say one of the later ones has an actress in it that's well, went on to be big. I know the fourth one has French Stewart in it from Third Rock from the Sun because he's on the poster. Ah, the mark of quality. But that's all I know. Yes. Uh, but that is that is the show. You can support everything and get bonus stuff over at patreon.com slash TV. Every month on Patreon, you get, at the $3 tier and up, you get access to the Criterion Cut, which is a monthly show where we do movies from the Criterion Collection, so some of the, potentially the best movies of all time. And at the $5 tier and up, you get Extra Reels, which is a monthly show where we review some of the worst movies of all time. They are the oh, yin and yang to each other. They are... <laughs> They are, yes, they're the, the polar opposites. They're the North and South Pole. They're the mm-hmm. the, the, the Coke and Pepsi of uh, 
the show. Actually, I don't even like that because I, I like both Coke and Pepsi. I feel bad. I was going to say same. Yeah, I feel bad giving one the distinction of being the extra rules equivalent. That's not fair. They're the Coke and Dr. Pepper. That's a better comparison. I'd say the Coke and the RC Cola. I've never had that, but I'll take it word for it. <laughs> but Dr. Pepper's disgusting. Yes, hot takes today, folks. I mean, I, I just like cola enough that if there is no Coke or Pepsi, I'll just take whatever fizzy drink. If it's Dr. Pepper, so be it. I'll take it. Yeah. Also, screw cherry Coke. That's also shit. Anyway. <laughs> that one's bold. I'll give you that. That one's bold. Yeah. Vanilla Coke as well. Basically, I don't like other flavors. Just give me Coke. Like regular Coca-Cola is all I want from Coke if I'm going to have Coke. See, I've always wanted to try because they've come out with some weird ones recently. I think one of them was called like Starlight Flavored or something. I have no idea what that's supposed to be, but I want to try it. AI-powered soda from the future. Anyway, <laughs> uh, that is the show. So join us for the Home Alone season starting next week, uh, which we'll be doing throughout December. Uh, but thank you once again for watching or listening. We always appreciate it. Keep watching movies and... Uh, movie reference. This is cinema. Brilliant.